Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about leveraging brand strategy and design to improve sales for allocated wine offerings. Today, our guests are Byron Hoffman and Tyson Kelly, the co-CEOs of Offset. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And just for full disclosure, Offset has been a client of mine, and we're partnering together on a research project with professors at Kellogg to study allocated offerings. So topical conversation. I was wondering if you could both give me and Peter a brief overview of your backgrounds and why you're on the show today. I'll try to be brief here. So going way, way back, I was actually born in Napa. So I was surrounded by the wine industry, but wasn't completely in it. That's it. My grandfather was the winemaker for Christian Brothers many years before I was born. So my experience with the wine industry as a kid was helping him make wine out of his pickup truck at home. And mind you, this was a winemaker who built, I think, the most sophisticated production facility in all of Napa. And in his retirement, he made wine in a pickup truck. So I grew up in a town surrounded by wine, took it for granted in many, many ways. My family was also in the food world. My grandmother and grandfather, they were the original founders of the French Laundry Restaurant. So I worked there as a kid. Sorry that I won't go into, but the whole kind of project that I worked on for many, many years with my grandmother. But really got into design, studied design at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, moved to San Francisco directly after. Napa and the wine industry has a way of pulling you back. So started freelancing for wine businesses very, very early. And I would say just maybe five years into that, had a chance encounter with Tyson. Even though we ran separate companies at the time, we started to collaborate deeply. And that just led to us starting the company together many, many years ago now. Tyson, how many years was it now? (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's many different dates on these things. So the story is always confusing, but something back in, gosh, 2010, we met, I think, originally, which is really cool. Similar background to Byron, I grew up in Napa, originally from Chicago, but came out here and went to high school with a bunch of wine kids, actually. So I got to grow up around wineries here and was exposed to that and always found it to be kind of a fascinating thing. And I never really did a official university kind of thing at all. Kind of immediately went off on my own and started doing web design and development stuff right out of high school and kind of fell in love with it. And one of the first projects was a winery over in Sonoma, Don Sebastiani and Sons. And got to do this big website with these guys. And I just had so much fun with it. I thought, oh, this is a really cool industry. And there's such interesting characters. And the product is really fascinating. And there's a lot to learn there. And really just kind of fell in love with that. And then from that, started getting more and more freelance projects. And then our other partner in the business, actually, I kind of met him early on in some of these things. And he helped us kind of put together some content management systems and tech pieces and building the development side of things. But I think it was in 2009, 2008, when we kind of started the first iteration of this company, we were in this funny recession and we were doing a whole bunch of marketing stuff for wineries. And we designed these really beautiful sites, we built them. And then all of a sudden, the commerce portion was this really awful experience. And at the time, there were few providers. And that was one of these things that just irritated me so much. And 
kind of the background of this whole thing is I was very frustrated by the lack of attention to detail in terms of what you could do from a design standpoint on the commerce portion of these sites. And I exhausted every option, looked at everything and realized that I needed to build my own and I couldn't do that by myself. So pulled on a number of partners and help on these things. And early on, Byron and I got to meet, like he said, we had kind of different businesses, but we collaborated on one last bottle, which you guys are probably familiar with big, awesome retailer that we get to work with. And that's been such a fun project. And we've got to combine the early stages of our e-commerce system that we built over the course of the year and got to couple that with this design that Byron had been able to put together in his former company. And they've been a long time client since. And as a result, we've had good success with all this. Anyway, there's my long rambling speech of my background. Just a brief shout out to Byron's grandma, Sally Schmidt who he'd helped design the cookbook, Six California Kitchens, is that what it's called? Which has not just great recipes, but is also super unique in the way it's laid out. But for those who aren't familiar, and to build on what you guys just said, what exactly is Offset and what does it do? Offset is a commerce technology and brand design company. Really what that means in practice is we have, as Tyson alluded to, a commerce platform that we built many, many years ago, which goes by the name Offset Commerce. And that commerce platform really focuses on, we like to describe it as the 20% of the industry that's doing things differently. Of course, the allocated market is a portion of that, which we'll get into. Then the brand design portion of our company is really a combination of strategists, designers, developers that come together to really build great brand experiences for our customers. And we really believe in that just intersection of design and technology. And that comes through in really everything that we do. Awesome. So, I mean, since we're going to get hyper-focused on allocated offerings, we should probably start with definition, understanding of what those are and what makes them different, both from a branding and like actual commerce perspective from other ways of selling wine, like a wine club or an online store. Who could give us a breakdown of that? I can kind of jump into that a little bit, but you know, Peter wrote the book on this, so I'm going to have to do my best to define this, but allocations, we kind of view there's three or four different models of selling wine online right now, direct to consumer, one being open cart more like an Amazon model where anybody can come in and kind of get anything at any time. Clubs, obviously you've seen great success in wine clubs on these things. Subscriptions, a little bit like a wine club, but more geared towards when somebody wants something and just kind of regular distributions and allocations. There's a couple of others, obviously auctions and all these things. We focus really on three of these here. Allocations basically are kind of at its core. Event-based purchasing, right? So there's a time frame around this thing that is a highly controlled release of product to specific customers in varying amount, either kind of on a first come first serve basis, a guaranteed basis or request. Kind of another way of looking at it is really just kind of allowing the winery to really carefully control the sales of its wines so that it can be spread out across many different customers. Oftentimes, allocations are really geared around kind of an exclusivity component of this where there may be high demand and fewer product available. So we see this a lot on kind of the high end side of wineries where they only make a certain amount and they want to try to get that out to as many people as possible and not allow one person or a group of people to kind of hoard all that. I guess that's a decent way to describe that in a sense. Peter, how did I do there? That's an okay summary, I guess, of <laughs> so my chapter. Maybe you have to go back into the book and, you know, take some more yeah. notes. <laughs> yeah. Peter plugging his book, of course. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So obviously limited offerings that they want to disperse amongst their subset of users. What are the core technical differences with doing allocated offerings? Like how different is that from the kind of typical 
shop bringing stuff into the cart? Sure. So just from a setup standpoint, I think there's a lot of effort going into deciding who's going to get what, basically, right? In an open cart model, obviously, you have your product, right? So when you're in a system, it's really easy to set up the product or products that you're going to want, kind of merchandise them or something in terms of the order you want them to appear on the page. In these open cart situations, you kind of toss them up, release that to the world, maybe send them an email to say that the wines are up. And then anybody just kind of free for all can kind of come into that and buy any number of them. So there's no restriction around it. It's really just kind of really a first come first serve, get it while you can kind of situation. And it's really open for as long as it is. There are great successes in that style of sales models. We see that happen a lot on the retail side of things. And then smaller wineries who don't necessarily need to be allocated will leverage those kinds of things. It's a really easy setup, right? It's really basically just putting your products, details in, the pricing you want to sell it at, descriptions, imagery, all that kind of stuff, displaying it on the website and letting it go from there. Whereas in an allocation model, you're spending probably a lot of effort. These are oftentimes twice a year, three times a year, maybe. And it's kind of like really geared around the businesses. The optimal time to sell these things is always going to be based on a number of factors, but certainly like shipping windows. So you usually release in kind of January, February, so you can hit a good shipping window before it gets too hot during the summer to sell things. And then often there's a fall release later in kind of September, and then they can ship kind of in the November timeline. So it's cool again. The difference in terms of setup basically then is you plan a lot around, okay, here's my group of customers. I have all this information about them effectively in our commerce system here is kind of part of the CRM, right? So you've got their lifetime values, you know exactly everything they've ever ordered, you know various touch points, key data, things that you may have input about people in there. And you make decisions around, okay, like this type of person is going to go into this bucket and say, within an allocation, there can be individualized allocations. So every single person could get something different. There's group allocations where you can basically group people and say like this group is going to get access to these products and this amount of each product. And then there are requests. So you can do kind of like a wish only order within the whole system so that you're able to really designate exactly what product and how somebody is going to be able to kind of like either purchase it or wish for it. So you spend a lot of time kind of going through this and should probably toss this back to Peter a little bit. Like we've worked since 2014 together on, on a lot of these things with a couple of different wineries. From a technical standpoint, it's either you going into kind of an Excel spreadsheet sometimes and just looking through. And I can remember hearing great stories from some of these guys that invented this stuff way back in the day where they would go through a written down spreadsheet and handwrite. This person's going to get two bottles of our Cabernet and three bottles of our Chardonnay and XYZ. And they sometimes continue to do that, which is really a wild thing. So you know, your original question when you asked, like, how does technology happen in this whole thing? Like, it can be very rudimentary or it can be really sophisticated. Peter, in many cases, would build systems that would analyze a whole bunch of different data and then spit out what it actually should be for kind of there's an algorithm, I suppose you could say, that gets built sometimes because sometimes there are tens of thousands of customers that you're trying to deal with and you don't want to have to deal with that on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, a lot of setup goes into it in terms of who gets what. Then you kind of like load that all into the system and then you spend a little time again kind of like now adding your product descriptions, your imagery, making sure it kind of all says the right things. And I think a big factor in this whole thing is, especially the wineries that we get to work with, they care about the language that gets put into the checkout experience, right? They really want customers to feel connected to the brand. And sometimes it can be as simple as modifying language. 
on the path to purchase. And that can be a really powerful thing. Once that's all set up, then orders get processed, they get thrown into the system. And then with all these little ins and outs of things, there's many different layers to this and workflows that kind of happen. If you've got wish requests, those are things that kind of happen a little bit later. So part of the supply demand thing is allocating is tricky because you could be completely wrong in the whole thing where you could say, oh, okay, here's 5,000 people we're going to send this to. This many get this much. We hope that they're going to take a certain percentage of that. But you may be guessing wrong entirely and you could undersell. So you have these wish requests where if somebody's only allowed to buy three bottles of something, they may want to actually get more later. That's a component to it that can be really helpful to kind of like allow more out there. A big factor in allocations is really just kind of making sure that you're not oversaturating your market as well. And I think that this industry does a pretty bad job at that actually right now. I think we're pushing too much and I think we need to pull back a little bit on some of these things. That was a lot of good detail, but to take it high level, the real differences from a technology standpoint are putting in allocations of limiting what people can buy, whether that's groups or individuals, and then the whole wish process of wishing for more wine and granting those wishes. That's a new technological thing that you don't need to do in the other models. Yeah, that back end of before it ever goes out, that actual non-user facing component is a major part of that. So just to ground the episode, in case people don't know Offset or your clientele, maybe we could name drop a few clients so that people can have an understanding of like who you're working with and would be using a system like yours. We are predominantly based in Napa and Sonoma, and we work with a lot of really wonderful high-end brands out here, but large and small. Costa Brown, Aubert, Lark Mead come to mind right off the bat, and then smaller producers, Carlo Mandavi's Rain Winery is a fantastic example. Bedrock Wine Company is a longtime client. Ceritas is a rather new client. Dumal is a great client, actually a mutual client between us and Peter, Grace Family, Vineyards. So yeah, really, as Tyson said, heavily Napa and Sonoma focused. And we really try to have a good mix of legacy brands that have been around for a long time and new producers, just so we take a balanced perspective internally to brand and approach. So when we think about designing allocated offering systems, to be more effective, how do you approach those differences in design? It's funny. On the back end, you know, as Tyson illustrated, like a lot of this does get rather complex. There's many, you know, very complicated technology problems for us to solve. But really, the reason that we're kind of devoted to that is we're wanting our technology to kind of fit our clients' business models versus having technology that oversimplifies what their business model is. Like we want to really like leverage like what our clients have learned through many, many years. You know, of course, we'll provide recommendations as well. The flip side of that from like, let's say a customer perspective, someone that's on, you know, one of these lists and they receive a email with an offering. Many times it's about presenting the brand in a way that feels in line with their just like the stature of the brand and their perception of the brand. So like just carrying, you know, the way that we're showcasing the product, doing that very, very well. So it doesn't feel like a commodity product in any way. You know, as Tyson mentioned, paying very close attention to language and also acknowledging that many people, they're sold on the brand and the product already. Traditional product pages, a lot of times there'll be a lot of information. There'll be a lot of storytelling because they're essentially looking to kind of continue the sale on that page where you have to take into account with many allocated brands, people have probably, they've opted in already. In some cases, maybe they've been on a waiting list for years and years and years, and now they've received this allocation and they may feel like they only have 
so much time to be able to buy it before it disappears. So it's about making that kind of customer purchasing experience feel reflective of the brand, but also simplifying where it makes sense. And also, you know, prioritizing different call to actions that are in line with the winery's goals. For example, like if someone has, let's say like a rather large full allocation, let's make it very easy for them to purchase all of that. So including a button that just says, you know, add my full allocation before they even need to scroll at all. So using tools like that to encourage the type of behavior that a customer is looking to do and also the types of behaviors the winery is looking to encourage. And so as a winery, what options do I actually have and how I design this? And that could be anything from designing that consumer path to purchase, as it's called, or obviously we talked about the choices and allocations already. But what other options do wineries have and how they design that and how do you help them think about that? It's interesting that there's a lot of strategy that kind of goes into some of these things. We're lucky in that most wineries pretty much do very similar things. You know, they've all kind of modeled these things after each other. They see kind of how someone else does it and will kind of adapt and deal with that. The allocation model, as far as I understand, has been around 30-something years. And Steve Kistler was one of the pioneers in that. And so Occidental being a really great client of ours, it was fun to chat with him about how he originally did these things. And when we got to start working with him, I sat down with him and he was like, what should I be paying attention to now? And I think a lot of it really just comes down to how do we want to talk about your brand when somebody comes in the process? So, you know, this starts with an email that goes out to somebody. So it's the language that's used in there. It's the graphics that are used on there, the photography that kind of presents itself to get them into an actual allocation. Then from there, what are your options at the very top of the screen to kind of welcome them into the offer, introducing them into what you're about to be presenting them for a purchase below? Do you talk about the winemaking components of this, or every brand has something a little bit different in terms of their needs there. Then you get down into it, and at the very basic, right, it's allowing them to either upload an image or potentially a video around something, a wine description, extended descriptions. Do you put reviews in there? Because that's how you actually sell versus the merit of the wine itself. Who knows? Every winery will want to like promote something a little bit different there. So what we really try to do is give a whole bunch of kind of like standard options to begin with, And then kind of where the design side comes into this is if they're working with us on a lot of really custom design, again, kind of higher price point projects, we're going to really sit down and actually figure out like, how can we really present these things in a very unique way that feels very customized to this particular brand? And so what comes to mind recently, a really big one that we got to launch this year was Colcita Creek, the producer up in Washington. We got to do some really cool stuff, rotating bottle shots and videos kind of like when they first come into the offering. And that was just like a gorgeous presentation of their product. So really kind of like sets the stage of something that's like, oh yeah, okay, now I'm excited about this. And then as you get down, really big bottle. So I think like, you know, again, it kind of comes down to, are you trying to make this easy or do you really want to put forth a lot of presentation into this whole thing? A lot of wineries spend a fortune and a huge amount of time figuring out their packaging and how it gets shipped to somebody and all these details. And then often the website becomes kind of like this major conduit for somebody to buy their stuff and they put so little thought into it. And so it's always amazing to me, the attention to detail that people put into so much everything else in their experiences, and then they don't do that on the website. So we are really excited when we get to work with brands that do care about those things and really like want to push that. So, you know, this flows all the way through to the receipts and the messaging and all that kind of stuff there. Shout out to Damal there. You know, we'll be reworking our custom designs for receipts as well pretty soon as a new feature in the system. So I guess like a big thing, brand differentiated commerce, I think was a thing that we have worked on with you, Peter. It's kind of a 
way to describe this whole thing is like we really care about how the brand's presentation is presented to a consumer, how a consumer interacts with it. And that could be different for every single winery, which is really cool. So we've adapted our system to be able to accommodate those things. That's not for everybody, and that's fine. But we really think that that does make a huge impact on the purchasing experience. What best practices have you seen work and what kind of impact have they had? I think that the best practice I can see working always is when you can simplify as much as you can. And people make things really complicated on themselves and they overthink a lot of things. And it's almost like there can be too much customization or too many different ins and outs of things. And so like when a lot of people really pull back and they say, okay, what am I really trying to do here? It's selling these wines to these groups of people. Maybe I want to just modify my messaging a little bit per group or something along those lines and just keep it tight and focused. That's going to be one of the best practices because I've seen it happen too many times where this group gets this messaging and this messaging. And then if they do this, this and this, and all these things start to happen. And then this like desire for too much automation even can completely like go wrong if something doesn't happen properly. It gets very confusing. So I think what is a best practice? It's really a winery better understand this model for them to really understand how to like leverage it properly. And the cool part is we work with a lot of really, really smart people out there in these wineries that actually like get it, which is really neat to see. There is this sense of tradition that kind of happens here where this has been a style that's been employed by this industry for a long time. And I think it's really cool to see it digitized. And then we get to see how that pushes forward. And I don't know, Byron, what are your other thoughts on this? One thing I'll add, and this is maybe more related to just websites for allocated producers in general, separate from the path to purchase, just a general watch out for a lot of wineries that kind of categorize themselves as luxury brands. There's always, understandably, you you don't want to appear like you're selling too hard. But at the same time, there's certain actions that you want to encourage people to take, or maybe encourage is not even the right word, just make it easy for them to take if they want to. So for example, like if for an allocated producer, you have at the end of the day, one really simple call to action. It's signing up for your mailing list, waiting list, whatever you want to call it. And it's constantly kind of shocking to me how far some brands will go to want to kind of obscure that information or hide it. So it feels like the softest push possible at the expense of just good UX design and making it easy for someone to take an action that they want to take. So it really is a very delicate thing. We've handled that in many different ways for brands because there isn't a perfect one-size-fits-all model. But I would say that's something that we see again and again and again is a kind of sensitivity to call to actions and actually kind of going out of the way to obscure them at the expense of your website being able to do what it needs to do at the end of the day. Which grossly infuriates me sometimes. I got to be honest, like there are many things about the wine industry that are just like very obstructionist to what like common marketing behaviors or common consumer behavior and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, it's so bizarre to me sometimes where it's like, hey, your entire business is, is based on the health of your list. And I think a lot of people are very afraid to push forward on these things. So certainly one of the big upward battles I have is always trying to convince somebody to hey, put a major call to action on your website. This is okay. It is perfectly okay to do these kinds of things. So it's an interesting component where like, I certainly handle the technology side of our business, but I overlap with Byron on design. And you know that's always one of those things that's interesting with some of these big players is there are certain 
important best practices that we seem to ignore as an industry, and we should be certainly putting those in priority there. I'm always blown away by that. I am curious because just mentioning the list is something I was thinking about. Is I'm assuming there's a huge component of what happens when someone doesn't buy. Having talked to a couple very well-known, highly allocated wineries in Napa that they said that they actually had to change some of their model as they went through the pandemic and be a little bit more lenient and less strict on that and kind of like evolved it or offer single bottles instead of three packs or six packs because they want to be mindful of that change. Exactly. And there are so many different ways and tactics you can take to sell stuff. I think 2020 hit and we were obviously all very concerned about what was going to happen. I remember having many conversations with Peter as well. And Byron, I was like, oh my gosh, is our business even going to survive this whole thing? And it turned out everybody was trapped at home and we could still ship. And suddenly like the most amazing thing happened was people were drinking a lot and they then bought a lot more wine. And then there was depletion of that. And then they reordered. And this was like this really incredible thing that we saw. Certainly one of the interesting and cool things that happened in pandemic times was a willingness for wineries to actually like adapt and try different things that they would never be willing to do before. That was a really encouraging thing for me to see across brands that were very reserved brands that would never have tried these things before. Suddenly we're opening up library offerings and they were still being smart about how they got it out to the world and everything. And I think that was a great thing to see. And I think we've seen a scale back on some of that stuff nowadays. And I'd love to keep pushing more towards that. It's like, hey, remember, this was only two years ago and you did great with it. Let's keep the momentum going. So I am curious on how does technology enable these best practices? You know, mentioned a lot about that most of these companies doing wineries doing allocated offerings are luxury products and they have to carry that messaging through and they all want to have bespoke messaging. Are you enabling them to do like A-B testing or like what is it on the technology side that's enabling best practices? That's an interesting way to look at it. So I think like we've developed just like kind of the base workflows for all these things, right? And A-B testing is always like one of those little bit of tricky ones, especially with allocations, right? Where these are these limited production kind of releases, all these things happen in tight timelines. You can certainly learn a lot more technology-wise from like open carts and retailers because there's constant things going through all that kind of stuff. And A-B testing works a little bit better there. How I've looked at it at least is it's kind of gradual iteration, release over release. And so Costa Brown is a perfect example of this. Years ago, when we started working with them, they were on a different platform. They migrated over to us. And one of the big things that we kind of just tried to get the sense of was, what do you guys struggle with from a customer service perspective here? And like, what's the customer experience like? We know we can already make that better and design that in a nicer way. One of the big things was always like, people are confused about X, Y, and Z. One of them being WIF requests. We're spending so much time on the phone dealing with these kinds of things. And technology can either get really complicated and you can create really sophisticated things around these, or you can just like solve a really practical thing through a website. That's also technology. And that's just leveraging really smart kind of design and language to something. And so like we understood that going into it and said, okay, how can we explain wish requests a little bit easier to consumers? And we just put natural language around it. And we were doing things in the very beginning of like, how many bottles would you like to purchase? was like a really simple little tactic that we did up front. And we learned from that and then explained along the way, put the stuff into practice on the website. And suddenly, like the big win for them was the number of phone calls or emails that came in asking about all this stuff was reduced drastically. Those are really simple technological solves. And there's a ton of low-hanging fruit out there for those kinds of things. I would say that there's old-fashioned ways of doing things and more sophisticated ways of doing things. Kind of what I was mentioning earlier with Peter when some of these guys literally go through and they tell you line by line, go through and say, all right, we're going to allocate these people. 
leveraging technology to kind of help create an algorithm to do a lot of that stuff for you, I think is a really powerful tool and can save a whole bunch of time and can be a much more beneficial way of dealing with things. This question is always an interesting one because like, I'm kind of like forward looking right now. And what are some of the things that I'm more excited about maybe in the future here would be, I don't know if you guys have played with this chat GPT thing, AI, where you can ask natural questions to this kind of thing. Wow, I'm absolutely mesmerized by how this thing works. And that would be something that I would see. Peter and I, a couple of years ago, did this little data project where we were going to create insights. And we still haven't gotten around to doing this yet in the system. But here's the actual information you need to know about your list health and your orders and all these overarching kind of business goals that can be surfaced. We have all this data in there. How can we get this out to people in meaningful ways? I could see AI, you toss in a whole bunch of your company and order customer product information into this and can it analyze it and do some cool stuff behind the scenes. And literally, like maybe there's an interface and various user types. The CEO comes in, the CFO comes in and says, what are my top 50 customers in Texas and California that have purchased this and this and this? And then all of a sudden it spits back this list of things. I think that kind of stuff would be absolutely cool. It feels like magic. And that's the kind of thing that I would really like to see us start to gravitate towards. I think it'd be awesome. Robert, you had a question a moment ago about kind of like when people miss orders, very basic little things in technology where we know who has ordered. We also track things like who comes into the website and what actions they take. And then oftentimes you can kind of leverage that and glean who didn't do something from that information. And then you can send them reminder emails really easily. So I think like there's so many little basic things that you can do leveraging basic technology or just data that comes in from the system. So, you know, we know everybody who did purchase, which means we know everybody who didn't purchase. And then you can, again, send them a reminder email, push them into the system, get more orders out of it. We see that, especially in this allocation model, that is how you get people into it. It's kind of sending those touch points all the time. Another huge one that we saw that was absolutely amazing was text messaging. I think there's that statistic that like 98% of text messages get read within three minutes or something like that. And so we tapped into a great text messaging partner called Slick Text, partnered with those guys. They allow for text messages to go through for alcohol. Believe it or not, this is such a challenging, restrictive industry that we work in. We basically have another thing called magic links within our system. So these are kind of short tokenized auto login links effectively. So somebody can click on that and then it automatically logs them in, reducing the friction so they don't have to remember their email password and they get their offering. When we did that with text messages, you feel it in your pocket and you're like, oh yeah, cool, boom. I go in, I already happen to have my shipping information and my billing information stored because I'm a longtime customer. I click all the things I want or click the add full allocation button and boom, within 20 seconds, I'm done with my entire order process. And it's so seamless and easy. And then from a tracking standpoint, we know that that order came in from that text message or from that email. And so there's a lot of analysis that can be done at the end. And sky's the limit there, really. It's kind of crazy. But I guess the big thing is, what do you do with all that information in the end? That's always the big question. People always love to have it. And then no one ever does a thing with it. And just to add to that from a very, very high level, because we focus on very distinct portions of the wine industry, we're able to learn from those models and we're able to embrace an iterative process. We also have a lot of clients where we have kind of more of an enterprise custom development relationship where we're working hand in hand with them to build and test out and improve new features. So we really 
are able to work kind of in lockstep with our clients who are pursuing this sales model, which is a very, very small portion of just wine in general. So oftentimes what happens with commerce platforms is you'll pursue technology that works for the most amount of clients and many, many different types of clients. And so then you're not necessarily solving really well for any of them. So we take a very different approach where we're focusing intently on kind of small little markets and really looking to learn and collaborate with them as much as possible. From a cost perspective, how does doing an allocated offering differ from other sales methods? This is going to be an interesting one. What does it cost the winery to do something like that versus just an open cart, in other words? Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to just the knowledge base and do you have the right person who has the mindset of how to allocate its time more than anything, I suppose, the way I'm kind of thinking about this right now. I suppose like it can be a little bit more cost effective, I'd say, when you have these like event-based purchasing. If you're doing a release in January and another one in September, you know exactly when you're going to need the things to happen, right? As opposed to an open cart, which is all your long sales, that does require like a lot more going on. Now, I'm imagining a scenario where you sell out in both of those situations, but you have these like concentrated kind of efforts and then all year long, hopefully that person who was kind of in charge of something or the people that are in charge of it are then going off and acquiring new customers and doing some other things. I think it can be really beneficial from a shipping perspective too. Like your fulfillment house is usually like concentrated sets of orders to come in so they can just get it all out in bulk as opposed to kind of one-off. Every day you send over 15 orders or 10 orders or three, that becomes a little bit more of an annoyance for some of those guys. I think there can be benefit to these kind of concentrated timelines of things. And I'm trying to think like, what else pops in your mind, Peter? I'm going to toss this question back at you for a second. Basically, I think you're saying it's similar. It's very the same, especially from an e-commerce perspective. I think from a brand design perspective, it might be more complicated and you might need more thought and design into how you want to tell your message and get across why you're selling in an allocated way versus just having an open card or wine club. That's a good point, Peter. I mean, to get into costs from like more of our perspective as a studio. So with our commerce platform, this is largely because the majority of our clients are allocated and they're only selling at certain points during the year. So we don't have monthly pricing. It's a very, very simple, transparent transaction fee. So clients are only paying when they're selling wine. And then as you noted, like, of course, there's clients that are investing with us on larger kind of website brand, you know, storytelling projects that play a major role, like in their kind of overall brand and commerce efforts. That's a kind of completely different domain. But because we like to say that we love extremes, so we embrace working with a lot of small allocated producers and larger ones. So, you know, we're not just because we do kind of holistic design that can get very, very in-depth. That's not the right approach for the majority of small producers. So we have paths for them to have a well-designed cart that represents their brand without having to embark on a huge custom brand project. Now we're seeing some winners use like these hybrid methods where they're having both an allocated offering and a wine club. What do you think are the pros and cons of this approach? I think it's actually really good. I think that hybrid approaches are really smart. A lot of people say we certainly have our detractors of allocation models in and of themselves. I love hybrid approaches because it does allow you to, again, kind of promote things differently. Larkmeet is a really good example of this where they sell in a tasting room. They have this open environment. They sell to their club membership model, right, which is kind of traditional club. And then they also have these allocated releases that they do. And then 
there are all these little in-between things. So they can leverage all these different sales tactics really powerfully. Another really good example of this is Kermit Lynch. This is a retailer that has clubs and they have an open cart. And we've got these cool like kind of behind the scenes special offers that they're doing. I could see them probably leveraging the allocation model as well, where they want to control, like tightly control a specific product or products from producers that they get. You know, I think the pros are you have opportunities to push people into these different sales methods that work really well for them. You know, not everybody is going to jump into an open cart model because they don't want it. They don't want to be bothered by that kind of thing. The club model makes sense for them where they're just going to get kind of an automatic shipment quarterly or something like that. And then, you know, for like super high-end customers or your most valued, you want to be able to give them access to certain things. So that allocation model ends up being really powerful for them because then it feels like a really special thing geared towards that individual or that group of people. That can really just make a huge difference and move the needle. The con of it is it's a lot of setup, right? It is a lot of work for you to go through and kind of like, remember, okay, here's when we're doing these different things. And now I got to remember the open cart, this happens over here. And in the allocation model, we got to do all these things to get them set up properly. So there's no silver bullet, I guess, in winery DTC at all. And so like when you can leverage all these different things, I think it can be a super powerful thing. One interesting use of technology in this whole thing was we're seeing a lot of folks wanting to customize their clubs. And instead of building a whole new sales model for us to kind of accommodate that, one of the cool things that we figured out was, oh, wait, it's basically just an allocation. So we built these club things. So standard clubs basically happen. And then anybody who wants to modify their shipment, they can go through and do that for a set period of time. Say, you know, if the winery does that and they jump into an allocation, they pick and choose what they want. And it's usually more of something or additional products that might not have been part of the original shipment. And if they don't do that, then they just get the automatic shipment. And so like, it was a really easy flip of the switch there for us to leverage something we already had and then kind of extend another model, which was really cool. So I'm a huge proponent of these hybrid approaches. And it's literally no different than also being a smart winery and selling a little bit into Obviously, direct-to-consumer is hugely powerful and beneficial, but you better be in the distribution channel as well. It'd be foolish for a lot of brands to just be one versus another. So I think these are great tactics. Well, my big takeaway is you're my back channel to my private allocation of revenue from Kermit Lynch. Oh, there you go. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> they might catch that at some point. <laughs> We've been working with those guys for about eight years now, and that's been just an amazing partner and project for us because we've been able to leverage all that we do from a branding perspective. We started originally actually just as like, they didn't know anything about commerce. Let's jump into that. And over the course of a number of years, they grew that every year. They started really small and then just learned and continued to amplify their presence online. And then they came back around and said, hey, now we really want to push this to a new extreme. And Byron and the design team got to jump in and really push translating their amazing analog newsletter into the digital space. And I think we did a really, really good job with that. And now we're kind of engaged in a really huge project with them as well to take over the point of sale system in their retail shop. So that's a super exciting new venture for us. So we mentioned at the beginning that we're working on this research project together with Kellogg around the allocated offering model. There's so little research on this topic because technically there's like 1200 wineries in the U.S. that have this model, it's like 10% of the population. So most people are focused on the 90%, the wine club, the tasting rooms, etc. And very little research or knowledge 
actual data has been gathered around this part of the program. So we're working together to try to get wineries who employ this model to sign up securely, share some of their data so that we can better understand as an industry and so they can better understand how they're doing and improve. Why did you guys agree to partner on this and think that it's important for the industry to participate? Honestly, I think like, as I mentioned, Peter and I've been working together since 2014 and I've just really appreciated his sense of understanding of this industry, of the data that is around it or the lack thereof, I should say. This is still really small, right? And the more we can glean insight from data, I think this is just going to help make more informed decisions all around, right? So wineries want to be able to sell their wines to the right people for a long period of time, hopefully. And so much of this at this point is like a lot of just guesswork, right? You're still blanketing a whole bunch of people out there. So can you make more informed decisions? Can you understand potentially who might drop off the list based on key factors or something along these lines? There's a lot of creepy, crazy things you can do with data, but at the same time, like we've got it. Let's try to gain some really good insight into it to help propel forward. It excites me because I would like to see this industry continue to prosper and push more kind of on the DTC side. And, you know, I think it always ends up helping a lot of people. So that's at least my initial excitement on the whole thing. To add to that a little bit more, we're big believers in expertise at Offset. And that also means like acknowledging where we're not experts, where we're not experts in data analysis. And we have to acknowledge that we have a inherent bias towards this portion of the market, which we have built a lot of technology around. I think at the end of the day, having Kellogg involved in this, having data researchers and analysts that can truly look at this objectively, it's hugely powerful. Couple that with just like what we're seeing on a day-to-day basis, working with our clients, having those two things come together. I think it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to challenge some assumptions that allocated producers have made, challenge assumptions that we've made. Personally, just because I'm really more on the design side, really excited to dig into just how brand reputation and storytelling factors into all of this. Those are notoriously difficult things to parse out just from like a data analysis perspective, but really respect the people at Kellogg and what they're able to do in that arena. So incredibly excited about this. So we like to wrap up each episode on a personal note. I was wondering if you could each let us know, what was the most memorable bottle of wine you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with? Yeah, I'll jump into that quickly. So I mentioned at the very top of the episode that my grandfather was the winemaker at Christian Brothers for many, many years. When I was born in 1981, he made a case of port for me to celebrate my birth years. And for whatever reason, I forgot about it for the last 10 years or so. and I just visiting with my parents this last year, just rediscovered it and opened a bottle recently with a really good friend of mine who's a winemaker who's actually thinking about doing a port project for his winery. And it was just, for me, just like being reminded how personal wine can be at the end of the day was really special. And Tyson, how about you? Mine's a silly story, but a number of friends of mine and I go to this little steakhouse in Napa and we were there one day over the summer and I feel like a heavy Napa cab or anything tonight. Let's get something else. And Noticed there was this glorious bottle of Krug champagne in the the mini format, little 375 for $89. And you could get that or the 750 for $350. And we thought, well, this is a funny disconnect here. So we ordered three bottles for less than the price of one and all enjoyed it and confused the hell out of the whole wait staff. And we've done this about three or four times now, depleting their allocation of it. So it's a fun little one, but I always love a good bottle of champagne. 
It's like a little personal sized bottle just for you. It's perfect. Well, we want to thank you both for sharing your knowledge and insights into the allocation model. It's definitely something that, you know, a number of our listeners, I'm sure either on the recipient of or actively using for their wineries. So we want to thank you for sharing all that information. Really appreciate you having me. Thank you guys. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.